This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. This week, it's a special week. Mark and I are on vacation. We are not, in fact, in PW's offices. We're traveling around. And so we've queued up some of our greatest hits for you from our archives, some interviews with authors whose books remain timely and fascinating. So we'll talk to you soon. Today, we've got Morgan Jerkins on the line. Her new book is This Will Be My Undoing. Hello, Morgan. So glad you could join us. Thank you so much for having me. So in our starred review of your book, we say that your essays uh, force uh, readers to reckon with the humanity black women have consistently been denied. So, so tell us about that. Right. So I started my career, or professional career rather, in 2014. And that was a time when I was just writing for as many publications as I could and I was also trying to establish a sort of online community through Twitter, which I am still an avid user. And what I was being informed of, either through threads or even through my own research, was that Black women are often ignored. Um, they're often seen as footnotes, for example, for talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. It's often ignored that it was started by queer Black women. Um, and I was thinking about, for example, in pop culture, like the movie Hidden Figures, and thinking about just why is it that black women are always being ignored, our accomplishments, oftentimes the things that we say and how, you know, our stories and our histories can often be erased. So this book was a way in which I could position myself as the narrator and also as a protagonist, combining both, both cultural commentary and personal experience to talk about what it's like to be a young black woman in America. Tell us a little bit more about that online community you found. It sounds like it was really formative for you. Absolutely. So when I graduated from Princeton in 2014, I did not get a job, uh, and it devastated me. I was applying for editorial assistant positions, uh, entry-level positions in publishing, period. And I just assumed that because, you know, the, the job descriptions were like, you need a four-year college degree, you need to love books or write down the five books that you like. And because I had a Princeton degree and I had done multiple unpaid literary internships, I thought I had it in the bag and I didn't. So it was very devastating for me, both financially to go to from New Jersey and also just emotionally. I'm to graduate with such a high from this great university, but having no job to show for it. So when I moved back home, I was on uh, Twitter for an embarrassingly high amount of hours per day. And it was during that time when I saw that editors were hungry for personal essays from young women. At the same time, the murder of Michael Brown and the spark of the Black Lives Matter movement also had editors saying, hey, we need Black voices to talk about this occurrence that keeps happening over and over again, as well as race 
in general, race and gender in general, we're missing these voices from the outside of our newsrooms. And so I sort of, my career burgeoned right in the middle of that. I was writing personal essays and I was also writing about police brutality. And a lot of my voice was informed by the people who were coming up in their freelance careers at the same time I was, as well as the people who were just writing 10 to 30 tweet threads about misogynoir, which is the hatred of, hatred of Black women, um, trans women epidemics in America, uh, the uneven emotional labor between men and women in heterosexual relationships, all of these things for free. And it definitely fueled my understanding of how race, gender, and class intersect in the country. So a lot of my, so a lot of my knowledge and a lot of my, I would like to say, sever behind my voice um, came from Twitter and watching other people and allowing myself to sit back and be taught, for lack of a better phrase. So in your book, in your essays, how do you tackle these subjects? They're huge. What's an entry point for you? Entry point was starting with myself. I remember when I was writing my book proposal, um, for those that don't know, it's like when you are pitching an essay collection, submitting it to eight editors of publishing houses, you have to construct a book proposal. And one of the things you have to include, for the most part, are sample essays. And as soon as I sat down and said, I want to write about intersectional feminism, I want to write about black girlhood and womanhood, this moment of me wanting to be a cheerleader when I was 10 years old just immediately came to the forefront. I didn't even have to think about it. And so starting with myself first and making it abundantly clear that even though I am a black woman and I can share similarities and experiences from other black women, I cannot speak for all of them and explaining my story and then making sure I branch outward. So the entry point was with me. Let's talk about that essay that you just referred to. I mean, you, you write about mm -hmm. um, failing to make that all-white cheerleading squad. Can, can you take us to that essay, to that point? Certainly. So when I was 10 years old, I idolized cheerleaders, particularly white cheerleaders, because I loved watching TV and I loved watching movies, and I kept seeing that a white girl who was cheerleader was always the quintessential beautiful girl. All the guys wanted her. She was allowed to be stuck up and, you know, have a lot of flaws. And I wanted to be like that. I idolized it. And so I wanted to try out for the cheerleading squad. Um, I wanted to know what it was like to be desirable in that way. Um, I was an incredibly insecure child. I did not have a uh, I did not take comfort in my identity and therefore I wanted to be subsumed by somebody else's. And so cheerleading trials were underway and I devoted a painstaking amount of effort to the tryouts and trying to get my moves correctly. And then the tryouts happened. And granted, there were probably only, I was one of only about four other black girls who were trying out amongst like 30 other white girls. And even then, I think that is still an underestimation. And none of the black girls made it, including myself. And I was devastated. Um, days went by and I got over it. And I was in an argument with a friend of mine, a friend of mine who was not a black girl, but a woman, but another girl of color. And one of the things that she said to me that I never forgot, and I think that was sort of like the, the, the mic drop that I couldn't say anything more was she told me, you know, you know why the you know, you didn't make the cheerleading squads because they don't accept monkeys like you on the team. Hmm. And 
when I think about it as an adult, I think about it as, okay, that is when the traumatic part started. When I was a kid, I was like, oh my gosh, that's mean. And it's funny because I did a book event yesterday and someone said to me, oh, you know, did you still be in friends with her? And I said, yeah, I just sort of glossed over it, thought it was mean and left it at that. But when I, now that I'm an adult and I think back to that moment, I'm like, yeah, that was pretty traumatizing because it made me reflect on what is it that I was actually trying out for, for the cheerleading squad and whether or not I was being seen as inhumane or seeing myself as inhumane the entire time. So you felt as though you were really trying out for whiteness in a way and being turned down. Yes, whiteness and a chance to be human, which I thought was so closely linked to whiteness. And it's very interesting because, you know, as a child, you don't know the terms like respectability politics or code switching or assimilation. But even as a young kid, I still knew deep down what those words meant because I was trying to implement them in my small life. And how old were you? And and this was in New Jersey? Yes, I think I was about 10 years old. Mm. And it's clear that the other kids also knew what those words meant and, and sort of knew what you wanted and knew that it was their job to deny it to you. Like everybody right. was, everybody was caught up in these racial dynamics, even at an age where you didn't have words for them and you didn't necessarily know how to point to what was going on. Right. And still to this day, like, I'm not sure if the, the, the girl or now woman knew what she meant by what she said. Um, I don't remember even telling anybody what she said. Um, and I don't know if it was because I just wanted the argument to be over or what, but it stayed with me evidently. Uh, over, you know, like 15, well, say with me 15 years later, and I had to sort of think about it. In in your writing, we say is often personal. And when you talk about blackness, um, you talk about it as a label and as an honor. Uh, we see the label. Talk Talk to us about the honor. Right. So there's an essay in the book where I talk about, you know, being, you know, someone asking me, you know, why is it that you present as a black woman? Why can't you just, you know, why can't you just present as a human? And so you see, once again, this interplay between, you know, what people think are diametrically opposed identities to humanity. And it was very difficult for me because I thought, well, what does a black woman present like? And why can't I call myself that when I'm proud to call myself that? Um, and so when I think about, you know, this idea of like a label, this is what this is what I am. And this is not something that, you know, it's it's sort of it was thrust upon me, you know, living in some society and dealing with the legacies of slavery. You know, I, I am a black woman, but I also don't see that as a detriment or sort of like a barrier for someone to understand. I think of it as an honor. I think of it as an honor because I think about, you know, who I come from. I think about the people who constantly inform me and constantly influence culture are black women. And so it's very hard, you know, when you get in these spaces with those who do not look like yourself and you're just being you. You know, you know that your experiences are informed by your race and your gender and your class and oftentimes your sexuality as well. But you don't belabor the point. But then someone stops and says, why do you even use those labels to begin with? As if I can just cast them off. Because a lot of people don't understand that, you know, when we think of, of, you know, human, just straight human or person, usually we think of white people because they're usually cast as unraced. 
while everybody else is people of color. So it's very hard for me to say, well, why can't I just be human? Because that's not how society treats me. It's just as a human. And does and society does not treat everyone the same according to just being a human. They they don't. And so I have to acknowledge that. And what I hope is that other people acknowledge that as well. How do you extrapolate something like that from your personal experience to the broader essay? You said you don't want to speak for all black women, but um, you're trying to universalize or explore the ramifications of these things in a lot of ways. Right. So, you know, when I started the book, I, well, towards the end of the first chapter, I tell myself that I cannot speak for all black women. And so I have to make that point clear because if anybody's familiar with um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's uh, speech that she talks about the danger of a single mm-hmm. story, yeah. she talks about this idea of, you know, white people expect for you as soon as one, you know, person of color, in this case, a black woman has this sort of prominence to a certain extent and they talk about black people, then they have to speak for all of them and they can't. You know, I understand that privilege, privilege in certain ways informs my experiences. But when I talk about, for example, hair um, and how black women's hair is often mocked or degraded, when I talk about street harassment, um, when I talk about these statistics that we see in mass media that tell women, black women particularly, that, you know, if you become too successful, you're unmarriageable or you're undesirable. These are things that all black women have to digest. Even if, you know, they may be in a relationship or their hair may not be as kinky or thick as some other black girl. You know what I'm saying? It's like they st- these are these still hyper conscious messages that they're still receiving at large. So even though I have to talk about my personal experience, because, you know, I, I, I guess as a read, you know, as a reader, you can't always just go by these large ideas. You have to make it personal, intimate, because it, it because it's such a personal, intimate thing to talk about my to talk about black womanhood and what it means to me. But also to make sure I'm, I show people that I don't exist in a vacuum either. And a lot of these things that I'm feeling, I am living in the same society that other black women live in. And there are patterns that are going that that is affecting my personal life. You've mentioned sex and sexuality a couple of times, and uh, one of your essays talks about the sexualization of black women's bodies and the idea that you have to be ashamed of your sexuality in order to be taken seriously in the white world. How do you poke at that? I mean, that's a, again, that's a, that's a huge topic. Right. It started from a phrase that I've always heard even now, and it's called fast-tailed girls. Mm. And it's very interesting because I have never heard someone tell me what it means. It's one of those phrases that you just learn through the context. And the best way I can put it is that it's slut-shaming, but it's also racialized. I, in, in all my 25 years of living, I have never heard of such a loaded term for black boys and men. Um, the equivalent of that's equivalent to fast told girl. And what I wanted to talk about was the ways in which black girls are sexualized from the beginning, from that phrase that we often hear, or we can take it even further. You know, we think about, you know, when, when the Rutgers University women's basketball team were called nappy headed hoes, you know, when they were just playing a basketball game, but yet you, but yet a white radio host poked fun at their hair and both 
you know, there's supposed promiscuity. And so what I wanted to get at with this whole idea of like sexuality is like, where is the room for us to explore ourselves? If you already mark us as disgusting in a way, if you already mark us as being what when we when some of us are too young to even know what that means, how are we going to have the space and the liberty to be able to make our own sexual choices when it seems like we're already targeted? We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Morgan Jerkins, author of This Will Be My Undoing. Um, tell us a little bit about the subtitle of your title also, because I, I think there's a lot going on there. Yeah, so I honestly, like that was the subtitle was created by my team. I just came up with the first part. Uh, this will be my undoing. And I was so shocked that they even let me keep the first part of that um, because it, it seemed I thought it was afraid. I was afraid that it was seen as too abstract, too ominous, maybe. Hmm. And so the subtitle was supposed to ground it a little bit more. Like this is what I'm trying to tell you about myself. But in order to do that, I have to go backwards and undo the memories that I kept secret for so long and unpack them and contextualize them. And so when it's, when the subtitle says like living at the intersection of black, female and feminist and white America, it's saying that, you know, these are all of the identities that I'm trying to deal with at the same time that I'm living in a culture that often ignores or tries to silence what I try to say. And so what I wanted people to get from the subtitle is that I try to make the book as interdisciplinary as possible, that I'm trying to make it both personal and showing, you know, sociocultural context and letting people know, again, like this is, you know, if you see me on the cover, like I'm a, I'm a black woman, but I'm also saying that this is a feminist text as well because, and it's informed and it's influenced by my race and gender. So you also laud Beyonce's Lemonade as as art that finally represents black women as entire complex human beings. Uh, what, what did that spark for you and how is it shifting the landscape of black women's art? Well, man, that's a great question. What I'll say is when Lemonade was released on HBO that night, I felt a cultural shift. I had to write about it for uh, L magazine, the digital side of it. And then I was also online um, reading people's thoughts, particularly black women's thoughts at, in real time as they were watching it. And there was a feeling that everyone was sharing that was beyond moved. It was maybe rattled, maybe shaken, but transformed. And so was I. And I think I, I wanted to write about it because Beyonce has been a staple figure in my life since I was about six years old. Um, and to think about how much she has constantly evolved as a writer, as an artist, excuse me, um, is very inspiring. But also to talk about what this particular special meant for so many black women, because you have this black woman who shows all different types of black women, 
many, excuse me, many different types of black women in her program and taking us through the different stages, the, the vicissitudes of one's emotions and giving herself ample time through the lyrics and the melodies and the, and the many different beautiful theme changes in Louisiana to talk about how she comes to this triumphant finish. So as a writer, I'm very interested in exploring black women's interiorities. However, you know, jagged or dizzying they may appear. And I think that Lemonade accomplished bringing that to the visual form. And so I felt I had to write about it. I was on Twitter also um, for that, for that moment more as an observer, but I could really see that it was, that it was shaking people up, not just to see these depictions, but for what they implied for Beyonce's power as a, as a maker of culture, as an influencer of culture. Yeah, right. And I, I've never seen anything like it. And she, she'd clearly poured a tremendous amount of money, time, resources. And there was also who she chose to lift up with her work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I noticed on uh, Twitter, you recently commented on uh, the Quincy Jones uh, interview and the vulture. Was it you who'd said, uh, I'm, I'm trying to follow, you would like to uh, see a, a, a black queer voice uh, a la Quincy Jones on this subject? Yes, that was me. Tell us about that. Well, I, one of the things, one of the, the biggest takeaways that I received um, from that interview, as well as many other black people that I'm following is when he was divulging the facts, well, divulging the allegations, rather, I guess I should say, um, that Marlon Brando slept with James Baldwin, Marvin Gaye, and then Richard Pryor, who I just discovered that his white, his widow confirmed that they, that they did sleep together. Right. And it was very interesting because I wanted to pay close attention to what queer black men were saying, because it's very easy for me as a straight woman or for other people who are who, who do not identify as not as as black or queer. It's like, oh, this is scandalous when evidently these types of affairs have been happening for decades. But what are the historical implications of them? And why does it still seem very gossipy now? And so that's why I wanted to write, wanted to read writing from black queer men about this new revelation that may arguably not be new at all. And what does it say about the, that time period versus the time period now, especially when the ways in which we think about black masculinity uh, and when it comes to sexuality? And tell us how you incorporate uh, elements like that into your essays. I, I feel like throughout our conversation, you've touched on sexuality as a topic that interests you uh, and queer sexualities mm-hmm. and elevating queer voices. Right. One of the ways in which I tackled it was talking about street harassment. When black women talk about street harassment, um, when I was seeing, and I was trying to see, okay, you know, what about black men, for example? What does it have? Because the reason why I want to talk about it, because there was a there was an anecdote that I brought up in the book about a woman. I think her name, her last name is Roberts, Shoshana Roberts, who was like 24 years old and was walking through several different Manhattan, with several different New York City neighborhoods. And she was being catcalled all day long. And one of the things, one of the criticisms that I read 
from someone was that, well, most of the people that are catcalling her are Black and Latinx men. And it just paints them as the aggressive as if white men don't also catcall as well. And so when I started having these these conversations with other Black men and women, Black men would say, well, you know, I don't understand why saying good morning or have a nice day is considered sexual harassment. And, you know, to be fair, I said, okay, I get it. I guess you're just trying to be nice. But what about the woman who fears for her safety? And so when I wrote about this one evening where this man was trying to sell me tickets to a particular concert and he was raising his voice and he wanted me to take his number down and he was being a little bit aggressive, I had to deal with that because I thought maybe, you know, I feel scared. I'm terrified. I'm not from the city. But I had to keep going back and forth to myself and wondering, what if he was just being nice? What if there was no ill intention whatsoever? But as I kept doing that and taking up for him, I kept doubting my instincts as a person, as a woman. And so I try to talk about that in a way that's like, hey, you know, a lot of times, like I, when it comes to me as a black woman, I'm often conditioned to protect other people. And that falls into the dangerous stereotype of strong black woman. And so it's like, I'm supposed to be the pillar of my community. I'm supposed to protect other people, particularly black men. But if I tell them, you know, this was wrong, it may often seem like as if I'm trying to be their adversary. And how can we reconcile these, you know, often contradictory feelings? So when you were writing the essays for this book, did you intend them mm-hmm. to be put together in a book in the uh, sort of from the beginning? Or were you writing them for different purposes and then bringing them all together? Well, there are certain paragraphs in particular chapters, like when I'm talking about my labiaplasty, um, when I'm talking about what it's like first moving to New York and dealing with people saying something on the street. Um, those particular parts I did uh, take from essays that are recently published online, but the vast majority of those essays are original. And I wanted them to be in a book because so many of these essays, like the first essay, for example, Monkeys Like You, or the essay that I'm talking about, like Hunger for Men's Eyes, those are long essays where I have to admit these painful memories, admit how wrong I was, and also show you where I'm at now. And when you're writing essays online, a lot of times you only get maybe 1,500 words, 2,000, Mm. 2,500. And I needed more space to be able to really pull out what I'm trying to say. And so, yeah, so when I knew that I was going to write a book, I knew that certain essays like that, it had to be in a book. They could not be in any other form. And what was the inspiration to write the book in the first place? Was there a moment when you knew you just had to? My agent encouraged me. Uh, Just a little bit of background. I started writing, uh, well, non-professionally, when I was 14 years old, started writing fiction as a way to deal with uh, the, the daily harassment I would receive from my peers. Um, and so I started writing and then I went to MFA and Bennington writing seminars and for fiction as well. One of my advisors was Alex Chi. Mm. Um, and so my agent said to me, you know, you're doing all this work online. You're gaining a really, uh, strong portfolio. Why don't you write a, a, a essay collection about black women? And I thought about it and I looked at, you know, my work online and I thought that I was naturally going in that direction. And I said, okay, why not? And you have uh, two other books uh, coming down the pike. Tell us about them. Yes. So the next project that I'm doing is going to be called 
why we get out and it is inspired by the movie get out and basically what i'm going to be doing is writing about the ways in which black people pass down these behaviors things and customs as a way to protect ourselves um but from the outside looking in it may seem that we're being fear fearful or paranoid and that sort of demonstrates uh the conflicting realities that black people often have to face and then the third project that i'm doing is a novel called Call Baby. And in African-American folklore, it's often said that those who are born with a call um, have second sight. They can usually see the present or the future and the past, and they also have healing properties. So I'm going to be writing about female call bearers um, who, female call bearers and non-call bearers um, who are united through motherhood, whether biological or counterfeit, and it's all going to take place in present-day Harlem. Well, that sounds tremendously exciting. We can't wait to see them. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Morgan Jerkins, and you can find her book, This Will Be My Undoing, in stores right now. Morgan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, too. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Hi, I'm Joanne Littman, and I'm the author of That's What She Said, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Yvette Johnson on the line. Her new book is The Song and the Silence, a story about family, race, and what was revealed in a small town in the Mississippi Delta while searching for Booker Wright. Hello, Yvette. I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you. So um, that's quite a long subtitle, but I feel like it's only scratching (laughs) the surface of your book. Tell us about your grandfather, Booker Wright, and his hometown of Greenwood, Mississippi. Yeah, well, my grandfather, um, Booker, was a waiter full-time at a a restaurant that primarily only served um, whites in Greenwood. And he also owned his own restaurant called Booker's Place, um, and that was on the black side of town. And this was back, um, you know, early, you know, 60s and 70s and um, late 50s. And uh, Greenwood is this really small town in the Mississippi Delta. And, you know, I grew up knowing that my parents were from there, but I was I was um, I was born there, but we moved when I was two. So um, as a kid, I just grew up thinking it was, you know, this small sort of hick town you know, that didn't really have any major department stores or grocery stores. Um, But as I, um, when I got older and began looking more closely at it myself, I realized that Greenwood really, um, during the time when my parents were, you know, middle school, high school years, and also when Booker was working those two jobs, um, you know, Greenwood, Mississippi was really a hotbed for civil rights activity. So tell us a little bit more about that. Kind of set the scene for us of of what Greenwood was like in that era. Well, you know, there were um, weekly bombings of, you know, black churches and fire. There there was a lot of violence. You know, at one point, um, Martin Luther King Jr. actually wrote a letter directly to um, President Kennedy talking solely about his concern for what was happening in Greenwood. So the town itself really was... um, a town that was at least half white, and it was, I describe it kind of like Mayberry. You know, it was a town that loved um, family and lots of outings. And then around the town, there were all of these um, plantations where, you know, there was a large house with one or two um, white families, but then tons of of African-American families. 
And so, you you know, if you look at the entire county, you really had so many more people of color than you had people who were white. But, of course, the economic power um, really was in that smaller group. And so when the civil rights movement began and really began to take shape, and even that really, um, you know, by the by the the telling of many historians who are experts in civil rights history, you know, I was, I was, you know, as a kid, I learned that the civil rights movement began when this sweet little lady, Rosa Parks, wouldn't, you know, give up her seat in the front of the bus. But really, um, about five months before that, a 14-year-old boy was murdered just 10 miles north of Greenwood in a town with 500 residents called Money, Mississippi, and that was the Emmett Till murder. So it's interesting because really it was in that community where, the nation really began to say, what is going on down there? What is wrong down there? And, um, you know, there were there were people in the white community who really wanted to hold on to the life that they'd had before and were fearful and angry about the idea of change. And so there was a lot of violence perpetrated against blacks who attempted to vote. You know, they could have their homes foreclosed. They could lose um, uh, jobs. They could, you know, horrible things could happen to them, even just for being suspected um, as being a person who supported the movement. So it's a pretty, and, and you know, the, the phrase black power, uh, that phrase was first spoken in Greenwood. So it's it's a very historic place. Um, but it's, um, you know, today it's, it is it is kind of that town that in many ways I envisioned when I was a little girl. It's, it's still surprising when I visit Greenwood to to remember and to imagine that at one point it was it was on the national radar. And so your grandfather had, I, I think, what seems maybe to be a unique perspective, having worked uh, in the white neighborhood, but uh, uh, at, I think, Lusco's restaurant, but then owning his own place, Booker's Place. Mm-hmm. T- tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about what it was, you know, the two restaurants. I mean, they must have been very different, or, or were they? You know, I would say they were... They were complete opposites, but at the same way, they were mirror images of one another. So Booker worked um, at Lesko's Restaurant in Greenwood for um, a total of 25 years. And he worked there for a good 10, 15 years before he opened his own restaurant. And Lesko's was really the nicest restaurant in town. So people who were making a ton of money, they, we, we call them the planter class. So individuals who either owned um, plantations or who just, um, were making money off of cotton picking and, you know, whatever, beans and different things like that. But they had factories or they, you know, were high-level executives. So sort of, you know, individuals who were becoming very wealthy off of the cotton economy were members of the planter class. And that really was their place to go. And Lusco's was this really neat restaurant because they had um, curtained booths. So you would go into a booth and someone would, um, close a curtain or and really it wasn't it wasn't really even a booth it was more of um almost like a little office space and there, there was a table in there with multiple chairs and so you know you could go out to dinner and feel as though you really had privacy and there was a a little doorbell sort of um button in each booth so you could ring your server when you wanted them and so Lesko's was a place where um people sometimes let their hair down in ways that they wouldn't any place else Hmm. And, you know, according to the Lesko's owner, Booker was the favorite waiter. And, you know, decades after he left, people who, who'd eaten there and frequented, frequented the restaurant still talked about him, in part because Lesko's didn't have any rented or um, they didn't have printed menus. 
And so uh, the, the waiters were expected to recite the menu. Well, Booker came up with this really amazing rhyming song, <laughs> and that's how he delivered the menu to his customers. And so sometimes people would come in just to hear this. They, they would want to sit in his section just to have that experience. And then he was also really amazing with the children in that town. You know, would play with them and keep them entertained while their parents, you know, had grown-up talk during dinner. So people just really enjoyed him, but I think on some level maybe saw him as um, an exception. You know, he's black, but he's he's somehow different. And um, so when Booker opened his restaurant, he sort of, he had this, he had this, this sort of knowledge now imprinted on him about, um, it's really what the, the customer experiences that matters the most. So, um, you know, he had to, of course, open on the black side of town on a really dangerous street. And so from the outside, his restaurant really did not look very impressive. But once you got in, it was really, it was a place where, you know, middle to upper level African-Americans, you know, which obviously their economic class was much different than in the white community. But, you know, they, they could go and have a nice night out. They could dance. They could visit and chat, whereas most of the other restaurants for blacks were more of juke joints where, you know, there would be a stabbing or the police were always there. There was lots of violence, but he really kept his place, um, you know, he, he just, he didn't stand for any violence. If, if people came in without money and they wanted to, you know, ask someone else to buy them a meal, he would tell that person to leave. Um, it was really important to him that the customers just were assured that they could come in and at least feel a certain way in that space, which was amazing, too, because many of these blacks, of course, are living in this, this town of violence and fear and, um, you know, humiliation. And so to be able to come to a space where you are treated like you matter, you are important, um, it, was, it was exceptional. I'm sorry, what was the size of Greenwood at this time? Just to give us a yeah, you know, the actual town of Greenwood, if I'm remembering correctly, I think was about 16,000. Mm. And then when you, but when you included um, the county, which um, most people did because, again, those, those smaller communities outside of it really had to come into Greenwood to get supplies and things like that, the number jumps to, I think, about 46,000. Mm. So really small, con- considering that there have been, you know, it's included in so many history texts about civil rights and, you know, it's... Um, there was it was it was it was a place it was it was almost as if for for the whites there, civil rights was their hill to die on, and for many you know black activists, um, Greenwood was was the same. You know it was a place where you know we've got to win this battle. So, so your book was inspired uh, by a 1966 documentary segment that highlighted your grandfather, in which he talked very frankly about the racism of the town. So uh, I'm starting to get a sense of why someone would have gone to this particular town to do a documentary um, and why he would have been selected to be interviewed. But this still really caused a lot of uproar. So tell us tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So in... Um Frank DeFolita, um in 1965 went down to Greenwood, and it's, it's sort of funny because he was working for NBC, and they had this kind of documentary department, so they, twice a year he had to make something that was similar to a Dateline episode, you know, sort of a one-hour, um, you know, in-depth look at one topic. And he really wanted to go to Greenwood, but people were so afraid that he had difficulty even, even pulling together a crew, and he was required to pull together a crew of people from, you know, the NBC News Department, but in the end he was able to. Um, but he, it's interesting because Frank's goal with that film, um, Mississippi, A Self-Portrait, was to convey to people what the white argument was 
for segregation because he identified that what we were doing really was vilifying white Southerners. But, you know, it's it, and I think in this way, I mean, I think he's, he's he was right. And I think it even applies to our politics today. It can be very easy to look at someone and look at some of the choices they're making and decide that that person must not have a soul. They're a monster. But if you can actually discuss their reasons with them, you might actually be able to win them over, you know, without humiliating them. And so Frank's goal, you know, was to go down there and just give them a chance, you know, different community members to give them the opportunity to say why they were pro-segregation. And so, uh, but his, one of his producing partners said, hey, you've got to come to Lesko's and hear this waiter sing. And, you know, Frank said, no, I'm, that's, I'm not here to interview blacks, and that story's been done. Because this, again, is the mid-60s. And so really since the mid-50s, there had been news reports about issues in the South. So, you know, he didn't want to tell the black story. He wanted to tell a different story. Um, but he ended up going to see Booker, and Booker sang the menu. And Frank said, you know, oh, that's great. I'd love to put that in my documentary. And so they weren't allowed to film at Lesko's, but the next night they went to Booker's place, and Booker shut down, and, and they filmed there. Um, and as soon as Booker was finished singing the menu on camera, he stopped. And, and really, when, when he would sing the menu, he would put on um, a persona that was very similar to, like, the, the dim-witted, happy-go-lucky slave. Mm. Um, and so a very high-pitched voice and, you know, just this huge beaming smile. And then when he was finished singing the menu, his voice changed. And he looked into the camera and he said, that's how I talk because that's how my customers want me to talk. And um, wow. he went on really in just, you know, just two minutes time to um, imitate the way that he was treated by many of the customers at Lesko's and then just to describe how it felt to him um, to, to do the very best you can in your life, to bring the best of yourself to everything you do and to have it not be enough because you're the wrong color. So, so tell us, how, how did he portray his customers and how they treated him? You know, it was really interesting. So... I would say there were two really memorable things that he did. So he um, described customers who would scream at him, and he would respond smiling, and, and his voice would get even higher and higher and higher pitch, you know, just submitting himself, trying to, to um, pacify these angry customers. And, you know, they, they would say, and, and they weren't angry about the service. Like it was, you know, don't look at me and word. Don't look at me for a tip. Don't look at me. Mm. Um, why, why aren't you smiling? Why aren't you smiling? And then he described other white customers who, in an, in an attempt to come to Booker's defense, would say, oh, you should be nice to Booker because he's a good N-word. To which Booker would responded, yes, yes, I'm your N-word. You know, so it's like, well, which one is more humiliating? Wow. Um, so, wow. So, um, you saw this documentary segment, and uh, and it sounds like it kind of opened up a world that you hadn't known about. Give us a little bit of your your personal experience and perspective, and what led to the writing of this book. Yeah. Well, so I learned about um, Booker's appearance um, four years before I actually saw it. So I it was really just sort of like a legend. Um, the way that people would talk about it, uh, but the way that I always heard it was that he was angry, and I thought it was more of a man-on-the-street piece, you know, so that he was walking down the street and a reporter stuck a mic in his face and mm. he just said something provocative and kept going without really thinking about the consequences. 
so when I finally saw it, I remember, you know, first being, first realizing that, oh, they've got lights set up. This is a composed thing. He did have time to think about what he was going to say. Um, but I was also struck by how heartbreaking it was. And I think that, that the legend, that the sense people had for many years when they would recall it was that, was that he was angry because they felt angry when they saw it. But he's really not angry. He's um, very um, just vulnerable. And it broke my heart. And I, I just, I wanted to understand. He died the year before I was born. So I never, you know, I didn't get to ask him about this. And I learned about it, um, not from family, because no one in my family knew about it. So I just became really curious to understand, well, what is he talking about? You know, what, what is this world that he's describing? I, I want more details. I want to be able to envision this world. Um, and, you know, and a lot of that was because I had two, you know, lovely, beautiful African-American sons of my own. And I, I just felt as though I wanted a stronger grasp on not just my own family story, but just the idea of what they might experience when they go out into the world as African-American men in America. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Yvette Johnson, author of The Song and the Silence. So um, you went to Greenwood and uh, actually ended up talking with some people who knew Booker Wright. What was that like what, and what happened? Yeah, it, it was amazing. I actually went down with a film crew. We made a, a documentary film in the summer of 2011. And it's interesting in Greenwood, if you stop anyone on the street who's of a certain age, everyone knew Booker or knew of him, you know, if they lived there long enough. But um, it, it's funny because I really did want to write a book even back then. And I, you know, after many months, I felt sort of paralyzed because I, I kept thinking I must just not be very good at this type of research because I really couldn't, I, I couldn't get a sense of him from speaking to, you know, countless people about him um, on camera, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, you know, with me with my recorder, you know, all sort of these different ways of, um, of trying to connect with people. And, and it just seemed like everyone experienced him from afar. And... Um, it, you know, after staring at my computer and my laptop, you know, here back home in Phoenix for really for months and months at a time trying to figure out how to how to create this man on paper, it just dawned on me that the story is why is he so difficult to nail down from family members, from his children, from his wife, from his best friends, people who worked every day side by side with him, you know, they just their descriptions of him were the way that one would describe an acquaintance that sort of came and went from your life. So I began to look more deeply at what living in that type of environment does to your soul, to your ability to hope, to your ability to connect. But I also, um, it was interesting, our production crew was able to set up uh, some interviews with people who, you know, could easily be described as individuals who were on the wrong side of history, whites who were very proud segregationists, 
during um, the civil rights movement. And, you know, I went down there with every intention of just sort of setting these people on fire. And it was, it was, <laughs> you know, it was planned that the, that the production team arranged everything so that I had no conversations, no contact with some of these individuals until we were standing face to face. And um, they were not the way I expected them to be. Some of, the, I mean, some of them still clearly had um, dated views on race, but they also were clearly, clearly wounded by the choices that they'd made so long ago. And so then, you know, I, I began looking more closely, not just at what that experience did to to African-Americans who lived through it and to their family members who heard stories of it, but also what it did to white Americans who, um, you know, it, who were, you know, quote unquote, on the wrong side of history during such a pivotal time. And really, I mean, in Greenwood at that time, you know, I think it was William Winter who said, 95 or 96 percent of anyone he knew in, in Mississippi was a segregationist. Mm. So that was that was the way it was. One of the people you talked to was the leader of Greenwood's White uh, Citizens Council. Um, yeah. What was that like? Yeah, that was Noel Davis. Yeah, he um, he actually is in Frank's original film, and he in that '66 film he's describing the charity that whites give to these to black individuals you know the everyday run-of-the-mill black individual who clearly can't take care of themselves and um i found it to be highly offensive and just this excellent example of how racism can deny people their humanity you know he just had this idea it just it was clear that he just didn't think they were capable of, um, or at least it was clear to me, you know, in watching that 66 piece, that, that Davis seemed to just think that blacks in general needed to be cared for, and look how kind we are that we care for them. Um, so I, I really wanted to, in my mind, the phrase I kept saying was I wanted to deconstruct a racist. You know, I came up with all these questions and, you know, all these ways that I wanted to, to approach my conversation with him, and, um, you know, I don't want to deny anyone that, you know, the, the, the pleasure and the, the highs of reading the book, so I won't get too specific, <laughs> but um, um, I'll just say that uh, that meeting, the time I spent with him that afternoon completely changed my life, and it informed the work that I do. It, it changed everything. So. Wow. So um, what did you learn about your own family history? Well, you know, I'll say, I mean, I grew up in a house. You know, I love, love, love my parents, and, and they desperately love me as well. But, you know, it's, when, you're, when you're little, you think everything's normal. <laughs> so as I got older, I began to realize that, um, that my parents had um, their own wounds that I would say um, were still, they, they were untended during my childhood. So I think that they, you know, without realizing it, may have at times parented in a wounded way. And... You know, and I think, you know, I've gone around the country giving talks, and so I don't feel too silly saying this because I know that lots of other people have done this. And you, you, you learn in school that in a certain country or in a certain part of our country, there were these events or these battles or these horrible things happening during these years. And then conversely, you also know that your parents or your aunts or uncles were living in that time, in that place, but so often it never occurs to us to put it together. And I know now as a mother myself that when you're raising your children, there never seems to be a right time to tell them 
about racism and hate or about your own trauma, whether it's living in Japanese internment camps or, you know, being jailed because of your sexuality. You know, it just there's never a right time to share those stories with your kids. Um, so for me, I think the most amazing thing was was learning how I mean, I just so many times I've imagined myself just trying to be African-American living in a town like Greenwood in the early 1960s. And I just think I would be so, so, so afraid. And that's where my parents grew up, mm-hmm. a place where you can, I mean, Emmett Till was murdered and the two guys, everyone knew they did it. And six months later, they um, confessed to a magazine that they'd done it and they knew they were, they were fine because of double jeopardy to do that. But he was 14 years old and they brutalized him all through the night and no one paid a price. And that's the, you know, to raise children in a world like that to know that that if someone just decides they don't like you, they can do anything they want to your life and to your world, and there is no recourse. Um, And I I think that my parents, and I think, you know, hundreds of thousands of other um, people of color who lived in similar situations, I think that they were wounded and scarred in ways that we are just beginning to, um, to explore. Um, as you said, you grew up in San Diego. What was it like going to Greenwood and, and sort of putting yourself physically in that place and trying to imagine what it was like emotionally and psychologically to be there in the 60s? I mean, was, was it just sort of massive culture shock? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, first off, it's really humid. I know it's not the only place in you know, our country that's like that, but you know, just the humidity and the mosquitoes. And, and I, I'd been there before. I'd been there... Um, the year before for a family reunion when I wasn't doing research. Um, but, I, you know, I'll say that when I, was, when I went back to do research to make the film, I went to neighborhoods that I, I hadn't ever been to, um, saw levels of poverty that I hadn't seen before. Um, and, again, this is a very small town, so, you, you know, and, and the nicer, more affluent part of Greenwood is vast, and it is gorgeous. And, you know, to be able to get in your car and drive for, you know, eight minutes and then find neighborhoods where everything's boarded up, people are living in houses that look like they should be condemned. Um, And there's a sense, you know, and and many of the people who I've taken with me to Greenwood, um, there's there's just something in the air. And you, you just feel this sense, or at least people like me, maybe people from large cities or people, you know, who are unaccustomed to having to face the reality of racial strife every day. Um, you know, you, you, there's just, I just, you feel, I at least felt a sense of worry and not really a sense of hopelessness, but just a sense of what happened here. And, and it feels very slow. Like it, like it's trying to, like the town itself is trying to move through molasses. But at the same, you know, in, in the same moment, I would have to say that some of the kindest, most giving people I've met are people from Greenwood. And these are people with history written on their souls it's um it's a, it's a it's an amazing place it's um i don't know it's it's an amazing place well how, how do you feel that race relations uh has changed in the south or at least in greenwood since uh booker's day and and how have things stayed the same you know i mean that's it, it's tricky because in greenwood greenwood isn't isn't really the kind of place that people move to mm-hmm um, it's the kind of place people move away from. So a lot of the people who live there have lived there for a long time, you know, for generations and generations. And so um, 
you know, I mean, the town is legally integrated. You know, you still, you know, see like you do in many towns in our country, you know, people um, of color living in, in, you know, sort of one or two different areas and people who are white living in their areas. Um, you definitely see a huge divide in economic um, success. You know, there was uh, there's this amazing photographer, Matt Ike, E-I-C-H, I think is how you say his last name, but he did this amazing um, photo journalism piece, I think, for NBC News. But it's um, he went to Greenwood, and he just took pictures of whites, and he took pictures of blacks. You know, and again, like, some of these houses, you, you really do. I mean, like, so there's no furniture inside, there's hardly any food. And, I mean, it's just, and I can remember thinking to myself that, um, when I was there at least, that um, having lived in San Diego, I could, I could say that homeless people in San Diego probably eat more and have more access to services mm-hmm. than people who live in houses, blacks, some of the blacks living in houses in, in Greenwood. You know, and there is a black middle class there, but, you know, one of the professors at the university, um, the university in the next town, she said to me, you know, we try and tell our graduates to, to graduate and then to go you know, don't come back because there's just, there's not a lot of opportunity there. And sometimes I wonder what will happen to that town when the people who love it so much leave. Um, There has been some investment in the town. There's actually one of the most gorgeous hotels I've ever stayed in. It's called the Alluvian. It is in Greenwood. Someone came in, I I don't even, maybe six, seven years ago and um, tried to take a few of the streets and you know, keep that old charm, but bring them more up to date. And so there are some, you know, great restaurants there and some great experiences. But it's, you know, I mean, you really have to ask people to, to drive pretty far, you know, into the Delta to experience it. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens as the years go by and, and the people who were born in that community, you know, when they leave to see what happens. So you mentioned um, filming this documentary. And how, how did the book and the documentary end up differing? Oh, my gosh. Well, they're really different. So the doc, um, I made that with Raymond DeFolita. Um, it's called Booker's Place, a Mississippi Story. And Raymond is the son of the man who originally filmed Booker. And so the doc is really about what happened that summer um, and what we learned. So we just, you know, he was really interested in exploring his, who his father was during that time, that he would make this choice that no one else in, in his career was making. Um, to really to, to put your life in danger to tell the white story, <laughs> mm. um, and uh, and then we were we were really trying to sort of learn as much as we could about Booker. And I should say at the time there were a lot of questions about the way that Booker was murdered. So the documentary that we made um, is really about the '66 film, the events surrounding the making of that film, and then questions about Booker's murder. Um, my book is definitely more about, you know, sort of the African-American family in our nation, sort of told through the lens of my family. So um, none of my, you know, issues in my family, none of that is, is in the film. Um, and the film really sort of just documents the, the times and places in Booker's life. Like, you know, oh, and then he was doing this, and oh, and then he was doing that. Um, you know, but in my book, I look much more deeply at... Um, at what it may have felt like to live there. Um, so, and it's, it's uh, I always say it's part memoir, but it's also narrative nonfiction. You know, it's sort of like a history book because there, there's a lot of content in there um, recreating um, historical scenes. So, And what's next for you? 
Well, you know, it's funny. I, there, you know, writing nonfiction can be tricky in times because you could, you know that um, where you're at, that moment needs something else, you know, but you, you can't make it up. you got to stick to what you got. So, um, which, is, which is part of the reason this book ended up being so much about, um, you know, what it feels like to be black in America growing up after, you know, in the shadow of the civil rights movement and my own parents' experience. But there were many times that just to sort of comfort myself, I would begin working on fiction pieces, and it ended up then being the same piece. And so I'm, I'm writing a second book, which I'm really excited about. And, and then and I also, you know, I do, I do workshops. I've, you know, I've taken some of the lessons of the civil rights movement and things I've learned from my grandfather about showing your humanity and seeing other people's humanity. So I've done successfully done unconscious bias workshops with police officers, which is um, intense anyway, but it's extra intense given the environment that we're living in. And, and you know, those workshops are phenomenal. You know, it's, um, I'm real about my bias, and we talk about what they're, what they're faced with, the challenges they're facing. And so, um, you know, they normally start off scary because, you know, it's, I think there might be some assumptions about how I'm going to present the material, but by the end of it, um, the officers usually feel um, affirmed and respected, but they're also very aware of their biases and the biases in some of their systems of policing. So, We've been talking with Yvette Johnson, and you can find her book, The Song and the Silence, in stores right now. Yvette, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rose, and thank you, Mark. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 